Truly, this passage is the word of the Lord. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this, your word this morning, we pray that my lips might be glorifying to you and that our hearts might be raised in praise and honour of you. Amen. Well, we're back in 1 Kings again. We had a slight uh, break last week. If you were with us two weeks ago, you would have uh, heard our rector, Alan, give us a very dramatic account of the history and culture of the people of that time. Well, I'm not going to try and repeat that, but um, I want to give a brief introduction into the situation of Israel at this time before we actually get to look at the, uh, the passage we've had read out to us this morning. So, what was the situation like within this part of the world? Well, politically, the kingdom was split into two. There was the north, which was called Israel, and there was the south, which was called Judah. Now, the evil king, King Abel, reigned in the northern uh, territory. And uh, he'd married a foreign princess called Jezebel, who was renowned for her evil ways. If you want to read about that, it's found in 1 Kings 16, verse 27. Now, this Queen Jezebel had tremendous influence over the area. She'd brought in false religion in the form of Baal and the worship of Baal. She had encouraged the king and all the people to worship this false god. And she brought in Baal prophets and priests. Now we need to understand a little bit about Baal. He was seen as the god of fertility and rain. It was believed that if you worship Baal, he could control when it rained and when it didn't rain. Now the area in which these people lived was an area where they had a very hot and dry summer, which is why people like to go to the Mediterranean area for their summer holidays, but also a cool, wet winter. And rainfall was absolutely essential for the crops if they were to grow. Now, the type of society that these people lived in wasn't industrial, it was an agrarian society. That is, it was totally dependent upon farming. So therefore you can see that the god Baal becomes very important if you believe that he could supply the water for the crops. Now in contrast to this, the god of Israel, Yahweh, had made an agreement with his people that if they obeyed his commands and lords, God would provide water and the harvests. Now one of the commands that God had laid down for his people was that they were to have no other gods to worship, no other gods by him. Now it's into this situation that this man bursts, okay? This great man, Elijah. Now, I don't know what your understanding is of the Old Testament, but when people come into the Old Testament, we often see things about them like their lineage or their family, but we don't see any of this for Elijah. We know very little about him. We don't know what he looked like, we don't know what he liked, or anything like that. But what we do see is that he was an extraordinary person, both in politics, preaching, and miracle worker. 
And we know that he had a very positive relationship with God. He prayed a lot and he demonstrated a hatred for the Baal religion. And what he wanted to do was to magnify uh, Yahweh over Baal and defeat this uh, interloping religion once and for all. So, Elijah then sets out to show the people that Yahweh was the supreme God who controlled the natural world as well as their future. So we read in verse 1 of this chapter that uh, Elijah the Tisbite came into King Abel's palace and announced to the king that there was not going to be any rain or dew for several years except by his word. Now if you think about it, that's an amazing declaration to make. One that a normal person would not dare to make. I mean, I, would, I couldn't even dare to say what the weather would be like next week or even tomorrow. But Elijah declares that there would be no rain. Now one might think then that only someone who was very naive or a fool would make a statement like this. But Elijah is confident in his Lord because he knows that the message comes from God. Now, if we're to understand this, we need to understand what this implies with regard to God's law, the agreement made uh, by God with his people that he would send the rain if they obeyed his commands and he would withhold the rain if they disobeyed. We read of this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 12. Now we know that at this time the nation of Israel had been living in rebellion concerning the laws of God for over 50 years. And so it was time for God to withhold the rain. So as we look at these three accounts uh, we've got in front of us this morning, I'd like us to consider what this tells us about the character of the God of Israel, the character of the servant Elijah, the way God acts, and why it's important to us. Because if we consider the nature of the living God doesn't change through time, and we want to know God better, then there's lots that we can see in this passage. So, turning to the first account, look at verses 2 to 7. The drought and the stream. First thing we note about this is that God hears, uh, sorry, that Elijah hears God's word and he obeys it. He goes to the stream. Now, the point of this passage in the light of the law is that if people disobey the Lord, he can take away the very things that they need to live on. In this case, because the people of God refuse to give God the glory for providing the rain for their crops, and they gave credit to the pagan God, God would not let them have the rain. The people of God must not take the blessings of life for granted. They must acknowledge God in all these things because he won't allow them to rob him of his glory. And I wondered as I was reading this, do we do that? Do we give God the credit and thanksgiving for all that he gives us? And now we see the outcome of Elijah's statement to King Abel because the drought even affected him. He was short of water. He was in danger from the, from the king. And here we see the importance of location. Always an importance to a geographer. If I could have the first slide, please. 
So, Elijah's journeys to Carath Brook and Sidon. There's a map for you. As we read verse 2, we see that Elijah is told by God to go east to the Kerith Brook within the ravine, which would supply water during this period of drought. Now, this God of Elijah, we see, cares and provides for him. He provides for him water, but he also provides food. So we see a caring God. But this instruction from God means that Elijah won't be get, will be going further into the enemy territory. He'll be going to a place where God isn't honoured, where there was potential danger from the prophets of Baal and the king. And so I'd like to suggest to you that this requires bravery by Egypt. So it appears that this God has sent Elijah into a difficult location, but he promises to provide water and food for him. And so we see here that God can protect his servants and often puts them into locations we wouldn't consider desirable. But then there's the method of God's provision to provide for his servant Elijah. Now, this may not seem very important to us, if somewhat unusual. How would we feel, for instance, if a bird brought food to us in its beak? Surely there would be outcries, wouldn't there? The food's dirty, I'm not eating it, because it'll have germs upon it. But for God's people, this situation with the ravens was even worse, because the bird was one that lived off carrion, that is, dead animal meat, as well as worms and insects. And they believed that this meant that this uh, bird was religiously unclean. So if they, un- if they touched it, one became ritually unke- unclean. Yet here we see that God is taking the very opposite actions to what the people of God would have thought appropriate. God can and does use ways and methods that his people may find uncomfortable. However, God kept Elijah healthy because he doesn't appear to be any worse off for having eaten this food. We see the ways of God, of course, later with Jesus, who went into the homes of sinners, welcomed those that were unclean, those that were on the margins of the religious Jewish society. And that should encourage and challenge us. God often goes outside the methods and people that his people would consider appropriate to meet him and bring in his kingdom. No one, no one is too bad for God. I was remembered, I was reminded of this a few weeks ago when I heard Daryl Tunningley give an account of how he, a convicted felon in a maximum security jail, met with Jesus and came to faith. And now he's an evangelist and a leader of a church in the northwest of England. God can and does use people in situations that we often consider to be inappropriate. And we can learn from this, and we can welcome all into his church. But you'll note with this account, and with the other accounts we've got for us this morning, that God's actions and plans won't work unless the people are being obedient. It depends upon his people being obedient. This account wouldn't have happened if Elijah hadn't obeyed what he was told to do. 
Elijah was brave and obedient to God when he stepped into the dangerous court of King Abel. He was obedient when he went to the ravine. He was obedient when he went to the widow and told her what God had stated. And now, how God speaks to Elijah, of course, we don't know. We're not told in this passage whether that be by hearing a voice speaking or in a dream or by feelings. And God may well speak to us in many different ways. But the point is for us, isn't it? Do we recognise and obey God's instructions and calls upon our lives? Are we brave enough to go to unexpected places and people? Is our church brave enough, like Elijah? It's a challenge to all of us. It's sobering, isn't it, to think that for God to act here on earth, he has decided that he needs our obedience to his call. So that's the first account. What about the second one? Verses 8 to 16. Now, in verses 8 to 16, we've got the account of the widow and the flower. In this section, again, we see obedience and bravery. God's instructions are obeyed by Elijah. He does this by moving even further into enemy territory. If you look at the map, he goes north to that little place called uh, Seraphim near Sidon. Now, that place was the centre of power of the Queen Jezebel. It was the centre of power of the Baal priests, the centre of evil of that area. Not the sort of place one would recommend a follower of God to go to. And it's here that we see the wonder of God's plan for Elijah and his people. God could have sent Elijah to well-educated people. He could have sent him to wealthy people, powerful people, to provide food for him. Or he could have provided with him uh, a miracle like he did with the ravens. But no, we see that God has compassion on this poor and insignificant people to whom he shows his authority, his power, and his compassion. The widow would have had very little status in their society and was evidently very poor. Despite this, the widow must have had some spiritual awareness of God because she acknowledges that the prophet believes in a living God. We read of that in verse 12. Now, how she recognises this, we don't know. The drought was having an effect, though. Here also, crops were failing because she had little flour or oil, all of which would have come from plants grown locally. God, through Elijah, promises to provide for the widow, her son, and for himself, through the miracle of maintaining the level of flour and oil in the jars. Now, this action of God's, through this miracle, was a witness of his power and compassion to this woman and the community in which she lived. Imagine what it must have been like for them. They'd gone from a situation in which they expected to die in, any, in the next week or so. They'd gone from that situation into one where they had daily food through no action of their own. Think of the gossip that must have gone around that village, of what the son must have said to his friends. Because they would have seen and asked the woman, how is it? that you are still able to provide food for you three. So here we've got a witness again to the living, working God 
to the community. Now, miracles, of course, are defined as events that appear inexplicable by the laws of nature and so are held to be supernatural in origin or an act of God. Well, the purpose of biblical miracles uh, uh, and miracles worked by God through Christians and through Jesus is to proclaim the honour and glory of God. We know from the New Testament accounts that miracles do not necessarily lead people to believe in Jesus as God's son. But they always point towards God, even if those witnessing them won't acknowledge it. Miracles are a great witness to Christ. And I would encourage us all to pray for miracles here in our community. Not so that we are glorified, not so that Holy Trinity gains a reputation that this is a place where God is working, but rather a place where God is glorified, where people are meeting the living God and having their needs met. Throughout the records of Elijah and Elisha, these prophets, we see miracles being performed. We read in the New Testament the command to go out and preach the good news of God's kingdom, bringing healing and wholeness to God's world. And miracles can form a part of this. And then, account number three, verses 17 to 14, the restoration of the Son. Now, the drama of this story builds up, doesn't it? For now, though the widow and her son are provided for, we read that the son became ill and died in verse 17. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that this must have been a total disaster for this widow. Not only will she suffer and grieve the loss of her son, but he would have provided a way for her family to continue, provided security for her in her old age, He would have provided status and uh, security and offspring for her. A total disaster. So the woman reverts to a common understanding of this event at the time. Death is the result of sin. And so the woman admits to Elijah her sin and in verse 18 demonstrates her understanding that sinful actions will have judgment. So she asks Elijah, has my sin caused the death of my son? Well, I think it's important here, we note, isn't it, that Elijah doesn't refute this. Nowhere does he say, no, it's not your sin that has caused this. But rather, he goes and prays and calls upon the Lord for mercy on a woman who has looked after him. And so we see here again that this man, Elijah, is a man who actively prays for those in need. We read in verse 20, three times he calls upon the Lord. And three times he demonstrates his living faith in the power of God who can restore life to the boy. In other words, Elijah has faith in the fact that God has the power to heal and restore life to the boy. He also appears to have faith in the action that he performs. Because why did he not just pray for the boy? Well, we don't know. Why did he spread himself out over the boy as if by doing this he was transferring a living spirit to the boy? 
Well, we don't know. But we see similar actions with healing actions of Jesus and his disciples, where there are often physical actions involved. Think of the example of Jesus when he healed that man of blindness, where he spread mud on his eyes, or the touching of hands on the body. There seems to be a need for a faithful person through whom the Spirit of God can work and the connection through touch. Now, we live in an age, don't we, where sinful actions of some people are making it increasingly difficult for touch between people to take place. Sin corrupts good things. So innocent expressions of warmth and affection are being undermined by the fear that they're being committed by people of evil designs. Well, I believe we need touch. It's a natural human activity. And if carried out appropriately, can be used in faith healing ministry. This account before us is a wonderful picture of a living God who was prepared to act in compassion, It's a picture of a poor family who were touched by the power of God through the faith of the man of God. The man who was brave enough to call upon the mercy of the living God. Brave, you say? Why brave, Nigel? Well, it was a risky action, wasn't it, for Elijah to take. What might have been the result for him and his reputation in the community if God hadn't intervened? Imagine what he could have been thinking. How will I look? What effect will this have on God's work if the boy isn't healed? Now, isn't this what we often feel when we pray for healing? We worry that something might not happen. Well, here with Elijah, we read of no doubt. There's no wavering by Elijah, but we do read of him him calling upon the mercy of the living God who had already shown that he cared for this woman and her son. And so this miracle, again, shows us a picture of a living, powerful God who loves and cares for insignificant people and who is prepared to work within that time in history. It shows us the faith and action of a man who played a role in the bigger picture of the fight against Baal. Small actions can have big results. We should never underestimate the importance of the one person who comes to faith in Jesus. That one time we witnessed to a friend, the effect of the miracle of conversion where God's name was honoured and witnessed to. Now, of course, you'll say to me, Nigel, well, Elijah was a special prophet. Indeed, he was. Jesus is God's son. The apostles were men who met with Jesus. But if we are followers of Jesus, we have the same God as Elijah did. The God who still has the power to intervene into our time. Of course, this doesn't mean that all our requests for miracles will be met by God. It doesn't mean that all we ask in terms of miracles will happen. But it does mean that we can be brave. We can have faith in a living God who has power over the natural world, power over disease and wants to restore all of mankind back to life with him. Elijah was a man of God who heard God speaking, who was obedient and acted upon his word. A man prepared to go into land of opposition, had faith to rely upon God's word and was prepared to speak and act upon him. And we need to be people like that too, don't we? 
we, if, we are, if we're following Jesus, we can go out into the unknown. We can be obedient to the calls to share the good news with our friends, with our colleagues, with those in our community, with, through the things that we are doing. We can go and make disciples of all men through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to be obedient. We need to be faithful because God is the same God that Elijah had. And we can pray that men and, God, men and women of God will be raised up by God to do this in our time. Elijah came from nowhere. So can modern day leaders and disciples of God's people. Amen.